You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale continues our Grace is Greater series with a message on grace more beautiful than your brokenness. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. Last week, we began this series called Grace is Greater. And in our first message, we saw that grace is, a, is something that's best understood when it's a learned experience. Not that we just know about it, not that we've just heard about it, that we just understand it intellectually, but that we have experienced it. And that grace which needs to be experienced, we said last week, is greater than your mistakes. We learned that grace is always greater, no matter what. This morning, as we get into the message, I'd like to introduce you to someone that I'm sure most of us already know and so if you take a moment please watch this video you may have recognized that person our secret sin most of us have no real desire to introduce our secret sin to anyone else after all it's our secret and sometimes our sin stays hidden because we're in denial maybe it's because our pride has blinded us to it but oftentimes we try to keep our sin a secret because we just can't deal with what we've done The consequences are too great, and so we just can't deal. So we do our best not to think about the mistakes that we've made or the sins that we've committed. And we try to steer clear of God. How could He possibly forgive us when we can't even forgive ourselves? Or at least that's what we think anyway. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they lived life naked and unashamed, the Bible says. But the moment sin came on the the scene, They were ashamed and did their best to hide from God. Sometimes when our secret sin gets exposed, we go into hiding. We can no longer hide it, so we go into hiding. And as much as possible, we do our best to avoid the people that we know. Shame becomes our constant champion who relentlessly whispers, You're not worthy. You don't deserve a second chance. Anyone ever heard those, had those thoughts before? But here's a surprising characteristic about grace. And it's one of the things that I love about grace is that grace chases you. You can run away and you can hide, but grace is relentless. There's a phrase that's used to describe that moment when, when grace catches up to you. And it's this phrase, a beautiful collision. Now those two words, beautiful and collision, those aren't words that go together. We don't think of those words together because a word like collision, it brings to to mind words like uh, wrecked or broken or busted. Not things that we think of as beautiful. But grace finds you and chases you down and catches up to you. And it's a beautiful collision. As a, as a minister, I get to be privy to a lot of people's personal experiences. I get to be privy to a lot of uh, intimate moments in, in the lives of people. And one of my favorite things to witness is the moment where grace finally catches up to someone's mess. It's a beautiful moment when that happens, when, when grace collides with someone's mess. It's a beautiful thing. And in John chapter 4, which is where we're going to spend our time at, the rest of our time in Scripture at this morning, 
we find ourselves at an intersection where a beautiful collision is soon to take place. Jesus is traveling on His way to another city. And in John 4.4, it tells us that John says that He had to go through Samaria. That seems like a strange way to put it. He had to go through Samaria. In those days, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along very well. In fact, there was a lot of prejudice and a lot of hatred between the two groups. And so a first century Jewish reader would read that and he would seem to think that Jesus was forced to go. He had to go. He was forced to go. Jews would oftentimes would do their best to avoid going through Samaria. Most of the time, the, the, the path that they would take, the, the most direct route was through Samaria. But because of this hatred, because of this prejudice between the two groups, a Jewish person would go all the way around the outskirts of the town and take a, an extended path to avoid going through Samaria. A first century Jewish person would think that John was making the point that Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was, there was no other option, there was no other choice. Maybe a road was closed due to traffic or something or maybe traffic was backed up because of so many other people going around Samaria that the traffic had just backed up so bad and so they would say he had to go through it imagine if you asked a husband what did you do on your date last night he's not going to simply say I went into Yankee Candle and I smelled all the candles no he's not going to say that that would be awkward for everyone we would say oh hand in your man card you don't get to keep it if he admits to it at all, he's more likely to say, I had to go to Yankee Candle and smell all the different candles. That had to go is an important phrase. It, it, it brings to mind that he was going against his will, that he didn't have an option. He was forced into it. And that's how a Jewish reader of, of the time would have heard this. But as you and I read the story, it seems clear that Jesus wasn't forced to go to Samaria. As if Jesus could be forced into doing anything. Instead, it seems like Jesus went out of his way to go to Samaria. Had to go seems to be more in the sense that he had an appointment to keep. As if God, on, on the calendar before creation was established, God had circled this date, and there was a, Jesus was supposed to be at a specific place at a specific time to meet a specific person. And here, in John 4, we see this calendar event take place. Jesus gets into town. He arrives into Samaria around noon in the heat of the day and he goes to the well and sits down to rest while his disciples go into town and get some food. It's an unusual time and place to meet someone. People would come to the well in the morning hours or in the late evening when, when the sun was, was not bearing down, but not at noon in the heat of the day. This was not a time that you would do this. But he sees the person that he's waiting for. And the woman approaches the well to get some water. And it's an, unusual, it's an unusual time for such a chore, but it's also an uncom uncommon that she was alone. In those days, women would go to the well together in the same way that women today go to the bathroom together. But what we soon discover is that this woman has a rough past. She has a bad reputa reputation. And it's hard to say the reason that she's alone. Maybe it's that she avoided people or that people avoided her. It was actually probably mutual. She'd gotten tired of, of the judgmental looks and the whispers behind her back. And so she went to the well by herself with only her shame and her rejection to keep her company. When she arrives, Jesus asked her for a drink of water. And that broke all of the, of the etiquette rules 
A Jewish woman didn't speak to a Samaritan woman. A Jewish man didn't speak to a Samaritan woman. And, and this really throws the woman off. She's not sure how to respond to this. This man has, has done the unthinkable. He's asked me for a drink of water. She's not sure how to respond, so she calls him out on it. She plays Captain Obvious for a moment in verses 9 and 10. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Glad she recognized that. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now she's really confused. This man has, has broken all the etiquette rules. And now he's given her an answer in this metaphor. And, and she's thinking in terms of physical water for her physical thirst. And so she points out that, that Jesus doesn't even have a, have a bucket to draw water from. As if he might need one. And Jesus explains to her that he is the living water. And that if she drinks this water, she'll never thirst again. She's still not exploring the metaphor. And he's not making sense to her. And so Jesus decides to be a little more direct with her verses 16 and 18 says he told her go call your husband and come back well she replied i have no husband and jesus said to her you're right when you say that you have no husband the fact is is you've had five husbands and the man that you now live with is not your husband what you have said is quite true things go from awkward to now uncomfortable I think at this point in the conversation, the lady's probably ready to go back into talking about metaphors because, it, because now things have gotten personal. Jesus doesn't step away from this truth. He describes the reality of what she's done and the mess that her life has become. And her life at this point in time is a mess. The well of relationships that she keeps drawing from isn't quenching her thirst. And Jesus isn't going to politely pretend that everything is okay and step away from that when everything is not okay. If she's going to receive His grace, then she's going to have to stop hiding in her sin. And this is the hard part for us. Because we want to find another way, but here's the truth. Before we collide with the grace of God, we must first collide with the truth of our own sin. Before we can collide with the grace of God, we must first collide with the truth of our own sin. And Jesus gives this woman a hard truth. Your life's a mess. You're living with some guy who's not your husband, and you've had five of those already. Your life is a wreck. I wonder what hard truth Jesus might say to us today. Maybe he would say, your short temper keeps everyone around you on edge, and bitterness toward you is growing in your family. Maybe he would say, your drinking has gotten out of control. It's affecting a lot more than you know. Maybe he would say your porn problem is killing any chance of intimacy that you have in your marriage. Maybe he would say your flirting is leading you down a path that will devastate your family. You're allowing your heart to fall for a girl who's causing you to fall away from me. Or you're choosing your living boyfriend over a relationship with me. It's going to have to be one or the other. You're going deeper into debt to feel better about yourself, but the water out of that well will never satisfy you. Your self-righteous and legalistic spirit is causing the people at your job to stay away from me. Your judgmental attitude and your harsh tone are costing you a relationship with your grandkids. Jesus speaks some difficult truths. And it's the part of the collision with grace that we do our best to avoid. 
because it hurts. It's painful. It points out that we're not perfect like we like to think we are. And so what do we do when we're confronted with those difficult truths? We do the same thing that the woman does. She tries to steer the conversation away. She, she tries to point Jesus in a different direction, to steer the conversation away from her sin and her shame. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we, we must worship is in Jerusalem. You notice what she does there? Don't miss what she did there. Jesus confronts her, points out the truth about her life, and she steers the conversation away. Let's push pause for just a moment on our story and talk about a few false assumptions that this woman has made about Jesus. These are some of the same assumptions that that many of us often make, and if we make those assumptions, it will cause us to miss His grace in our lives as well. Assumption number one, Jesus wants nothing to do with me. If your assumption about Jesus is that He doesn't have any interest in you, then there's a good chance that you've never really had any interest in Him either. Said another way, it's not that you don't want grace. Who wouldn't want grace? We all want grace. It's that you're convinced that grace doesn't want you. Feeling rejected can be one of the worst feelings to experience. When someone experiences rejection early and often, they quickly learn to build up walls to keep people from getting too close. When I was a freshman in high school, I uh, met a girl that went to another school, and I thought she was the cutest thing ever. I didn't know Christy at that time, so it's okay. I can tell you this story. But I just thought she, she, was, she was great. And I would do anything to get a date with this girl. I had just developed this massive crush on her. And so I even took the strategy of becoming best friends with her brother. I thought, hey, I'll spend a lot of time over at their house. He'll spend time with me. I'll be close. We'll, we'll just naturally bump into each other, and it'll, it'll work out great. It didn't work out so good. That wasn't a very good strategy. In fact, it actually probably backfired on me and, uh, and caused more separation between us. And every time I would ask this girl for a date, which I did often, she would quickly say no. And so that rejection came early and often. And it wasn't really that great of an experience. Getting rejected is never a good experience. And given this woman's history of husbands, she was likely careful to avoid putting herself in a position of vulnerability. After all, you don't run the risk of rejection if you never give someone a chance to hurt you. But Jesus went out of his way to be with this woman. Grace chased her down because that's what grace does. Kyle Otterman, the teaching minister at Southeast, said, one Saturday night after one of their services, a man came down to talk to him. He said he could tell that the man had been crying and and the man was still pretty emotional. Kyle asked him what his name was and how he could pray for him. And he said the man just cried all through his answer. He didn't so much cry as he just wept through his answer the man told Kyle he said my wife has left me and it's my fault I've done some really stupid things and and I haven't treated her the way that I should have she tried to tell me and I just wouldn't listen would you pray that God would forgive me and that my wife would forgive me I know I'm ready to make some changes but but I'm not sure that God would want me here after the mess that I've made of things The man was assuming that his mistakes were greater than God's grace and that Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with him. And so Kyle said that he prayed with the man and asked God to intervene in his marriage and and that God would bring him and his wife back together. But more than anything, he prayed that he would 
that the man would enter into a relationship, that he would encounter a relationship with Jesus, that God wasn't rejecting him, but that God was ready to help him. After they prayed together, Kyle asked the man if he, if this is where he went to church, if Southeast was his church, and the man explained, or rather confessed, that he had not been to church in a very long time. So Kyle asked if that's where his wife went to church, and he said she didn't go to church either. So Kyle, Kyle asked him, what made you come to church tonight? The man said, I don't know. I just felt like I had to go. The next day after one of their Sunday morning services, two sisters came down at the end of the service. One sister was comforting the other, who was clearly going through something difficult. The woman began right away before Kyle could even get her name. She said, I haven't been to church in a long time, and I hope it's okay that I'm here. But last night I was just so upset, and my sister said, I had to come this morning. The lady asked Kyle to pray for her husband because they had recently separated. She asked that Kyle would pray that God would soften his heart because she didn't think he cared anymore. At this point, Kyle was starting to put a couple of dots together. And he said, I just felt, kind of felt like God was winking at me. And so Kyle asked the lady, he said, I didn't get a chance to get your name. Could you tell me what your name was? And the lady told her, his name, told her her name. And Kyle said, I've got great news for you. Last night your husband was here and he came forward and he repented and he, he actually asked that we would pray that you would forgive him and that God would forgive him and that your marriage could be reconciled. The lady was a little dumbfounded. She, she didn't really know what to do. She, she found it hard to believe that her husband who had been long gone from the church would come to church and have this prayer time with Kyle. It, just, it was too good to be true. It was one of those moments where a beautiful collision was taking place and grace was flying everywhere. Both the man and the woman were making the assumption that God had given up on them and it was too late. They presumed that their marriage was too much of a mess, that it was, it was too far gone. And that God wouldn't want anything to do with it. But God made it clear to them, and I hope that He makes it clear to you, that he's, He was willing to meet them right where they were. And that he loves them enough and he loves you enough to not leave you there. Second assumption that, that the woman at the well makes is that Jesus is more interested in religion than me. Jesus is more interested in religion than he is interested in us. Did, did you notice what the woman at the well does in the conversation? She tries to distract Jesus by, by engaging him in a religious conversation. She tries to avoid this collision of, of this hard moment the, the truth of her sin, she tries to avoid that by bringing up a religious debate. She says, my ancestors worshipped here on this mountain, but you Jews say we have to go to Jerusalem to worship. So who really even knows where we're supposed to worship? I mean, we could talk about this all day and never get it right. It's kind of like talking about the end times with somebody today. You've got your pre-millennials and your post-millennial and your all-millennial and your pan-millennial and your pro-millennial and... And everybody just says, well, when, when Jesus comes back, it'll, we'll figure it all out. That's an, essentially what she's doing here. She's trying to engage Jesus in a religious conversation to avoid the hard truth about her sin. You know, these days, grace often gets overlooked because the church gets caught up in religious arguments and interpretive differences. I'm amazed at how easy it is for us to become distracted 
with religious or even pseudo-religious arguments. And I think we're especially prone to this when, we are, when what we're studying gets a little too uncomfortable. Like the woman at the well, we have a tendency to get religious when Jesus starts getting a little too personal. I have this working theory that the more people obsess over the issues that clearly fall under the umbrella of theological interpretation or, or opinion, they clearly fall under that umbrella. The more they obsess over that, the more likely it is that they're trying to keep Jesus from getting too personal in some area of their life. And immediately I know some of you say, well, that's not true. I don't think that. I, I think this, and I would just ask, what area are you trying to keep Jesus out of? The Samaritan woman falsely assumes that Jesus will be more interested in religion than her. And so she tries to draw Jesus into a religious debate. And just like my strategy of befriending this kid to be to befriend, befriending my best friend to get close to his sister wasn't a real effective strategy, engaging the Son of God in a theological debate is also not a very effective strategy. Assumption number three. The woman, makes, the woman assumes that Jesus is making an offer that's too good to be true. This woman doesn't believe in water that will forever quench her thirst. And again, consider her history. She's had all kinds of, hus- of men make her all kinds of promises. And she's skeptical and she's cynical and with good reason. She's been hurt by a lot of men in her life. She doesn't trust a man who seems to be promising more than he could ever possibly deliver. And she makes a number of false assumptions about Jesus and the gift that he offers her. And those assumptions keep her from getting too close. Each assumption is like a brick in the wall that separates her from grace. And those same assumptions keep us from getting too close to Jesus. And so the woman's had enough of of this conversation. She's been confronted by by the reality of her sin and she doesn't like it. She's tried to engage Jesus into a religious debate, and that hasn't really gone anywhere, so she decides it's time to wrap this conversation up. And so the woman says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Don't miss the irony of what she has just said. She says to Jesus, I know when Jesus comes, he'll make things clear. I know when, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us where it is that we're supposed to worship. If we could worship on this mountain or if we have to go to Jerusalem, I know when he comes, he'll make it clear. That's what she has just said to the Messiah, to Jesus. And I'm fairly certain that Jesus couldn't help but give a slight smile when he said, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the only time in the life of Jesus, and don't miss this, this because this is huge. This is the only time in his entire life when Jesus voluntarily and candidly tells someone that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. This is the only time where he reveals his identity as the Son of God to anyone. Every other time a person made that statement that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, they had to come to that conclusion on their own. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, good, it, because it was not... It was not anyone else that revealed this to you. You figured this out. And every other time someone figured that out, it was, on their, it was their own conclusion. But this time, the only time Jesus reveals his identity as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation who's been married five times and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. How's that for grace? 
when the truth about your life is hard to face, when you've made such a mess of things that you don't even know where to start cleaning up, when you can't forgive yourself and guilt and shame are constant companions, it's hard to imagine that grace is for you. Some of you think that the worst thing that could happen to you is that your sins will be found out and that your secrets will be exposed. You're afraid that someone's going to bring something up that you did a long time ago and you don't want anyone to know. And since God already knows, you do your best to avoid Him too. You think the worst thing that could happen to you is that you get found out and you have to confront the truth. But that's not the worst thing. Now the worst thing that could happen is that you go through your life and nobody knows. No one ever finds out. And you just carry the weight of your guilt and shame around with you everywhere. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you spend your life trying to outrun God because you think He's chasing you to collect what you owe, but when He's really chasing you to give to you what you could never afford. Before the woman at the well met Jesus, she didn't want anyone to see her. She didn't want anyone to know. And if they knew, she didn't want to know what they knew. She could never forgive herself for what she had done or for the person that she had become. But then her life collided with grace, and it was beautiful. And suddenly she saw things differently. Listen to how this this account ends. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone. She didn't walk back to where everyone else was, and that's where everyone else was, not where she wanted to be. She didn't walk back. She ran back. And now all of a sudden she's telling everyone. And she says, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. The things that she wanted nobody else to know about, she freely admits this man knew them all. Come and see him. He knows what I've done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. Because that's what happens when grace collides with our mess. It's a beautiful collision and grace flows everywhere and when grace flows people will come when when grace is experienced in your life and grace flows out of you people will see that and they will come and they will want to know where it is that you got this grace from because they want some of it too when god's grace and mercy collide with our shame and our guilt it's messy but it's beautiful jesus knows everything that you ever did He does. And He knows everything that you will ever do. But He wants to make sure that you know His grace is greater. Always. No matter what. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And it's going to be a a hymn of response. And so this is just a time that if you have something that you need to talk about with someone, that you want to pray about with somebody, maybe you need to experience grace. Then we invite you to come. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this, uh, this biblical account, this historical narrative that we find in your word. Thank you for preserving it. And thank you for allowing us to see the grace that this woman has experienced. Father, may it be the grace that we all experience in our own lives. Father, may we come to the reality and the, tr- and the truth of our own sin that it's ugly. It's nasty. But Father, help us to come to the realization uh, of that 
Because on the other side of that awaits your grace. So Father, I pray that we all find your grace. This morning, if, if there's someone here who, who needs to experience grace for the first time or the thousandth time, Father, I pray that they would, that they would just step out. That they would experience you new, just like it was the first time. And that they would come to know that your grace is greater, always, no matter what. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.